Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hi, it's Ella Whelan here, one third of the Spike podcast. Spiked is free and we want to keep it that way. So think about giving us a donation after you listen to today's show. Go to spiked-online.com and click the donate button. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week we have Spiked editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. This week we're going to stick to the general election and we'll be discussing the Brexit party climb down, foreign interference and much, much more. The Brexit party will not contest... The 317 seats the Conservatives won at the last election. I'm glad that there is a recognition that there's only one way to get Brexit done, and that is to vote for us. I'm dumbfounded that this government won't release the report about Russian influence. Brexit is the real end of the British Empire. This week, Nigel Farage made the bombshell announcement that the Brexit party would stand down in the 317 seats that the Conservatives had won at the last election. This was to avoid splitting the Leave vote in those areas. I mean, Ella, what are your initial thoughts on this? Very disappointed, I have to say. I think one of the most exciting things about the Brexit party was that I think up until now, it held true to its slogan to change politics for good in that it had that kind of vibe of being the rebels, of being the serious ones, certainly when it came to Brexit, of all the time being on the right side of the debate in terms Mm. of challenging the nonsense claims from Tories of the past, of challenging Theresa May. It it encapsulated the kind of excitement I think that many people had of genuinely trying to shake something new out of British politics. Uh, And yet it seems like they have, uh, some people are calling them unfavorably turquoise Tories because Mm. of the fact that they've stood down and allowed certain Tory seats to be unchallenged. It does feel like they've acquiesced, especially when you consider the fact that Nigel Farage has decided to still challenge the Labour leave seats, including Mm. ones with Skinner and Flint and Graham Stringer and people who are, by all accounts, serious leavers or as as serious as some of the Tories that they're giving a a free go at it, including Theresa May and Damien Green. It does leave you to think, what is Farage playing at? Is he so worried about Corbyn now that he's decided to do this to back up the Tories? Mm. Is he serious about Brexit? Because, you know, let's not forget the fact that he has for a long time challenged Boris Johnson's position on Brexit as being far too soft, rightly so. Has he given up on that now? I mean, this does not look good for anyone who's thinking about using this election as making a serious stance on Brexit. Yeah, I mean, as you, as you say, Farage described Boris's deal as the second worst deal in history after Theresa May's deal yeah. and now is, you know, standing his um, party aside to allow people to vote for it or to not even challenge it. Hmm. No, I completely agree with Ella. I think it's quite shocking what's happened, actually. And you know, this was a party that presented itself as changing politics for good, but actually what it's done is disenfranchised millions of people because mm. there are now significant sections of society who don't really know who to vote for. And they've been landed with the choice that they were trying to escape from, which is 
Tory versus Labour, which yeah. is, you know, soft Brexit or Brino versus a hardcore, what has become a hardcore Remain party, uh, the Labour Party. So they've really limited people's choices. And for a party that said it was going to shake up democracy and increase the democratic choice, increase democratic power, that does feel, like Joanna Williams said on Spike this week, that does feel like a slap in the face to mm. leave voters and to the ideas that the Brexit Party was pushing. You know, it's a, it's a tiny bit complicated. The one caveat I would add is that I think probably the decision they've taken will have an okay effect in the sense that I was concerned for quite a long time about the splitting of the Leave vote. That was something that worried me. The thing that worried me primarily was that the Remain Alliance would just use that to their advantage, get together as much as they could, even though there's frosty relations between Labour and the rest of the Remain parties, and use to their advantage the possibility of a, a big split in the Leave vote. So that did worry me a lot. And you can tell that the decision made by Farage has had a semi-positive impact because of the meltdown of the Remain Alliance. I mean, mm -hmm. they absolutely loathe this. They're terrified of it. And of course, they're talking about fascism and a hard-right alliance. You can always tell how, when they're scared because they start rabbiting on about all this fascism stuff. So you can see it's had a semi-positive impact on the way things are going. But... That doesn't mean it's been done for a good reason. That doesn't yeah. mean that the long-term consequences of it will be positive. And that does not mean that ordinary people are being given the choices they ought to be given. And I, the way I see it is that for the Brexit Party to present this as really sensible, patriotic, pro-democratic decision, I think that's utterly unconvincing. And mm. I think it's a position, it's a position they've taken from weakness rather than from a real sense of pragmatic vision or a determination to do the right thing. They've got to be honest about the fact that they were under extraordinary pressure and they didn't stand up to it very well. And the response from the kind of conservative press suggests exactly that, that they were acting out of weakness and, and they can smell blood. So now, you know, you have the Daily Mail headlines screaming that, you know, the Brexit party should stand down in more seats, in mm. Tory target seats as well, to just give a free hit to to Boris. I mean, this was always, I suppose, one of the dangers that's been around the Brexit party for a long time. I mean, we saw in the European elections, a significant proportion of the Brexit Party's voter base were just disgruntled Tories. And now that Boris has taken over, a lot of those people have simply gone back to the Tories in, in, in for the general election. Because this vote is more important than, say, the European elections, they're no longer willing to take a risk on a kind of protest party. And so it is kind of a real shame that the Brexit Party hasn't, you know, embedded itself as a, a separate force in, in British mm. politics. Mm. And I think that a lot of the leadership has to take the blame there because really, you know, I think the kind of people that they should be going for were Labour leavers, people around, especially the north of England, who, for very good reason, are not suddenly going to switch to Tory overnight just because um, they're more favourable towards Brexit. I mean, I think that part of me has sort of had a wake-up call that the idea that the Brexit party was going to be a new space for a kind of revolution, if you want to call it that, mm. politics, um, centered around the new landscape that Brexit would create, perhaps was giving them a bit more credit than their due. Because the fact is, I mean, even talking about the practicalities of winning a Brexit majority in a general election in terms of the important thing of not splitting the vote and those considerations seems to me more practically sensible that, you know, Farage could have held his nerve and proved that the, you know, significant, I think it would have been significant turnout for the Brexit party could have been used to strong arm 
the Tories into mm. being very hardcore with their Brexit policy. It could have been a great piece of evidence to say, hang on a minute, no matter what kind of guff you come up with in relation to the, you know, the get Brexit done slogan, this just kind of very piss poor attitude to what the Brexit vote encompasses. You could have used that as a, as a real tool to put pressure on people. But the other part of it is that the reason why Farage has decided to do this and the, and the, when he's had his press release talked about the fact was the, the move that convinced him was Johnson's moving on trade deals or mm. his, or him being a positive about free trade and open trade and all these kind of things. Which really, and I've said it before on this podcast, is of little to no consequence to your average voter. I mean, yeah. I don't care about trade deals. What I care about and what most ordinary people care about is things that you can tangibly hold, like your sense of democratic power, the rules that govern your country, the laws and um, regulations, all these things that actually do affect your daily life. Um, so they've missed that mark of making it a kind of political and serious effect of ordinary working people. And now it just really does feel like a kind of bland Tory Brexit that I can't get myself enthused about. And I, I think that example really, really illustrates the the problem, the fact that it's Nigel Farage being inspired by Boris Johnson. It really is the tail uh, wagging the dog in a sense. You know, the Brexit party were useful when their, you know, big victory in the European elections put pressure on the Tories to take a hardline stance around Brexit. But now it's the Tories who are softening the Brexit party. And, and then it just makes you ask, what's the, what's the point of it all? Yeah. Uh, I think that's the key point. The, the, the thing that's become clear this week is that the Brexit party is on the back foot now and is on the defensive and the Tories will feel emboldened by that. And, you know, the, the fact that the Tories are flat out refusing to reciprocate to what the Brexit party has done, they're not going to withdraw from any seats at all. Um, and they're playing hardball with the Brexit party, even though the Brexit party has made this massive, unprecedented compromise by leaving 317 seats to the Tories is extraordinary. The, so the Brexit party is now a minor player in a Tory machine. That's what it feels mm. like, which to a lot of voters, and I've seen people say this, and I've got messages from people saying this, they just feel like their choice has been taken away from them. And the vote they really wanted to make, which was take Brexit more seriously and make it a real thing, they're not going to be able to say that now with their vote. I think the the problem, I think, is that the question that seems to have guided the Brexit party's decision is not what is best for Brexit, but what is best for the Tories. Mm. And that's the thing that feels really, he does feel like a slap in the face. Because my view is that all Democrats should go into this election thinking to themselves, what can I do to improve the chances of Brexit actually happening? I mean, that's what I think should be on the minds of everyone when they're voting. I don't care who they vote for, as long as they think in a way that, you know, if I get this person in Parliament or if I dent this person's majority or if I weaken this person or strengthen that person, I think I'll have a chance of getting more levers into Parliament. That's how I think Democrats should approach this election. But I think what the Brexit Party has done is in talks with the Tories has said, well, this will be beneficial for the Tory party. This will be beneficial for them getting their Brexit over the line. This will be beneficial for what their vision of Brexit. And that feels like a really, really low horizons. And the end result is that the Brexit party is now facilitating the return of Remainers to Parliament mm. because by withdrawing from all Tory seats, including 
Tory Remainers or, you know, very, very soft Brexit Tories, they're giving free reign to people who will play a really negative role in Parliament in terms of continuing to soften Brexit or even to thwart Brexit. So Spike's view is that we should use this election to put as many levers as possible into Parliament. The Brexit Party is not actually helping with that role at the moment. So I think they either need to have a rethink or it might just be time up for the Brexit Party as a positive force. You're listening to the Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. One of the big story this week was um, Hillary Clinton has been in the UK um, promoting her new book on gutsy women. And while she's been here, she's made a few striking interventions. Firstly, she said she was concerned about us separating ourselves from Europe. Um, no surprise there. Then she said she was worried about Russian interference, the thing that she still believes scuppered her election. And finally, she suggested that the number of MPs resigning at this election meant we were going down the road towards fascism. Ella, what do you make of Hillary's um, interventions uh, this week? It is remarkable that in a climate in which everyone wets their pants when there's the suggestion of foreign intervention (laughs) or foreign influence, that an ex-presidential hopeful gets to fly in and basically act as if she's the mouthpiece of all that's Mm. right and good and Mm. give us a talking to over here. So if this was uh, someone from the Republican Party, if this was anyone who was pro-Brexit or right wing to a certain extent, whatever it was that wasn't the kind of liberal accepted point of view, this would be considered a dog whistle, you know, some kind of directive to all of the wrong thinking people in the UK to rise up. Of course, because it's Hillary Clinton, Mm. who is sort of been whitewashed throughout the majority of her career, seen as the, you know, lovely, cuddly grandma, the gutsy woman who, uh, you know, only speaks on behalf of the good and kind in this world. It's completely accepted. And actually what she said, it's, it's really important to interrogate what she said. And you wrote an article about it in The Spectator, Brendan, because she says, part of the thing she says is democracies need to stick together and you shouldn't separate yourself from Europe. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, you think, well, the reason why we're a democracy is that we should institute this vote that you're saying we shouldn't institute. Yeah. But actually, when you look at what she's saying, she's arguing for, and her politics arguing for a kind of the Europe block not mm. in a not in a international collective progressive kind of a way but in the the sort of you know the US and the UK stick together to fight off our international foes so it's actually not progressive in any shape or sense um what she's arguing for and take into account that alongside her just at this point, mad, mad conspiracy theories about Russia that, you know, saying the report in the UK should be released because it's obvious that Brexit has been uh, contaminated by Russian influence um, is like, you know, it's classic Hillary Clinton stoking up international conflict, um, making a name for herself on the basis of spinning rubbish Mm. and poking her nose into international affairs where she really isn't welcome. And she's not relevant in the US, never mind in the UK. (laughs) What is this woman doing? Yeah, I mean, the the conspiracy theories thing is is so true. I mean, this is a woman who is just not over the Cold War, I think. Mm. Um, 
and that's true in her view of, of Europe. You know, the reason we have the EU the way that it's currently constructed is, is a result of the Cold War. It's not a result of people feeling even post Second World War feeling nice, like they want to get together. It's designed the way it is as a bulwark against Russia and the Eastern powers. And you obviously see that in, in her view about Russian interference. She thinks that Russia is still the all powerful enemy when, as we've said on this podcast many times before, Russia is a, you know, a regional power at best. It's, only has like the 11th largest GDP in the world, smaller than Italy. It really isn't having the influence that Hillary Clinton claims it is. And she needs to basically get over the fact that she lost the 2016 election and also get over the fact that um, her side lost the Brexit referendum as well. Absolutely. You know, I really dislike Hillary Clinton. Even her <laughs> voice, everything about her gets on my nerves. But the thing that's been useful about her visit has just been such a reminder of how much she personifies that machine politics that people rejected in the little revolts of 2016 or the huge revolts of 2016, whether it was the very positive vote for Brexit or, you know, the semi-positive vote for Trump to the extent that it was a rebellion against the old establishment in the US. She personifies all the stuff that people were revolting against, you know, mm. that arrogance, the elitism, the contempt for ordinary people, the casual brushing aside of democratic votes and her hysteria about Russia and her determination to interfere around the world, whether it's poking her nose into the UK, as she has done over the past week, or far, far worse than that, the wars that she spearheaded in Syria and Libya, which people try to gloss over the role that she has played in destroying people's lives. One thing I was wondering is in relation to gutsy women, the real gutsy women are those women who've had to pick up the pieces after she just destroyed their countries. You know, we don't hear very much about them because they don't fit into the kind of Western middle-class feminist narrative. The thing that's really annoys me about the Hillary phenomenon, which also annoys me about the Remainer phenomenon more broadly, is this idea that they are the cool heads. Mm. They're the moderates, they're the progressives. And she's worried that the rest of us are going down the road of fascism and authoritarianism and we're shrill and we're extreme. And she has this very casual, cool demeanor. And it's so wrong to see that wing of politics in that way. There is nothing remotely progressive about Hillary Clinton. There's nothing moderate about her. Uh, she's an extremist. This is mm. someone who happily bombs foreign countries and happily kills the people who live there. This is someone who intervened in Syria in such a way that she exacerbated, you know, if you want to talk about fascism, she exacerbated the thing that's at least quite close to that in the contemporary world, which is extreme Islamist reaction in the shape of ISIS and other groups. And she is obsessed with Russia to a, a McCarthyite degree. And she goes around the world spreading conspiracy theories, spreading contempt for the eastern part of the world, spreading this idea that she is the world's policewoman and she must put the world to rights. That's what I would refer to as extremism. And I think one useful thing that Brexiteers ought to do while listening to her say Brexit's putting us on the road to fascism is just to remind themselves of the extremist positions that people like Hillary Clinton have taken and the incredibly destructive role she's played in the world over the past 10 years. We shouldn't let her get away with posing as the voice of reason. And of course, Hillary wasn't the only person um, from abroad to intervene in the election. Uh, Donald Tusk made a speech this week, basically telling Remainers not to give up the fight 
and to uh, try and keep us in the EU. Ella, do you want to say something on that? Everyone always uses football analogies to try and sound cool when they make these pronouncements. And Tusk is is no different. He says, in this match, we've already added time. Now we are in extra time. Perhaps it will even go to penalties. Um, And everyone on Twitter goes, ha, 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 ha. Isn't he brilliant? But actually, the more interesting thing, just coming back to the kind of the international landscape is the more interesting thing is the second thing that he said which is he says only as part of a united europe can the uk play a global role only together can we confront without any complexities the greatest powers of this world so i mean you know it, those of us uh, on the brexit side who might have had some concerns and had them poo-pooed about united europe and that kind of the move towards a block mm. in that sense will have had it confirmed by mm. Tusk there. That really does not sound like the kind of we all love the EU, wishy-washy, friendly kind of liberal perspective that lots of people try and spin the EU as. Yeah. as that sounds relatively sinister to me. Um, it, it's not the case, I think, that most people are pro the EU because they want to have an international block against enemies, um, which is what Tusk is sounding like he's saying there. But obviously, Anyone who had a bit of sense knew that this is what Donald Tusk and most of the top heads at the EU thought, that Brexit is an awful idea and that secretly or now not so secretly, they want it to be overturned. And it really only strengthens the argument because it shows that this is really crucial for them. Lots of people try and spin the idea that Brexit is just this sort of side issue for the EU and they don't really care. And you have, you know, Katia Adler from the BBC and other commentators saying, oh, they're too busy talking about the budget. You know, this really isn't an issue for them. It is so crucial Mm. for them because it's an arrow directly to the heart of the European Union. It has exposed everything that's wrong with them. And it's actually forced them to come out, whether it's Guy Verhofstadt or Tusk now, and reveal what the real project is, which is to completely dissolve any power that nation states have and act as a singular block with no recourse for voters in the countries to have any say of the kind of politics to really harden the move against democratic input from your average Joe or Jill. So um, it might annoy you to us coming out and saying this, but it's actually quite helpful mm. to show how you know, reveal what these people really think. You're listening to the Spike podcast. Spike has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spike, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spike a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. Let's just for the last few minutes talk a bit about one of the other issues that's been swirling around this election. At the weekend, the Tories accused Labour, and this was splashed across all the all the front pages of um, of the newspapers. The Tories accused Labour of wanting to spend an extra one point two trillion pounds of public money over the next five years. I mean, leaving aside the well known and well documented dubiousness of this figure, um, Brendan, what do you think it tells us about um, the election so far? I think it tells us that the Tories are really bad at electoral campaigning. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw that in two thousand and seventeen, and they were dreadful. And lots of people thought they'd get better with when Boris took over, but there's no evidence for that so far. Maybe it will change when the manifesto comes out and they have some actual ideas to push. But I thought that you know that figure one point two trillion was just complete fake news. I mean, one of the things they included in their crazy. Sum- was the 35 
billion it would cost to dissolve private schools and bring them back into the state sector. But that's just an idea that was floated at the Labour conference. I know it was passed, but we have no idea if it's going to be in the Labour manifesto or if it's being costed or if it's going to be taken forward in any way at all. So they added loads of things like that, which were just completely fake. Uh, it was such an error on their part because everyone just obviously pushed back and said, you're lying, you're making it up. But it does tell us something interesting, and Phil Mullen touched on this mm. on Spike this week. It actually reveals, for all the screaming at each other about, you know, fake news, this is the truth, and, and so on, and it looks like a real argument, but actually what it reveals is how similar their economic policies are, yeah. in the sense that both want to uh, ramp up public spending, and, you know, they're still obsessed with balancing the books, but they think there's now a bit more leeway to spend some of what they borrow and so on. They're very similar on that front, and it looks like the reason the Tories pushed back against Labour and made up this crazy figure was actually to distract attention from the fact that they are promising higher levels of public spending, which is not something that the Tory party normally does or is not particularly known for. So it's a bit of a deflection. I think it demonstrates that neither of them has a coherent economic policy Mm. to deal with the crisis that's been around for a very long time. Also, it demonstrates that both sides are reluctant to talk about the thing that this election is about, <laughs> yeah. which we've mentioned, which is Brexit, which is the fundamental issue of our time. And every other issue, the economy, the NHS, jobs, austerity, every other issue is subservient to Brexit and necessarily so because we have to work out who is in control of this nation and who runs this country before we can have open, honest, fruitful discussions about all those political issues. So, They don't want to have the huge tussle over Brexit that this election is fundamentally about. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Brexit is the only reason we are having this election, (laughs) you know, and it is actually the main thing that differentiates the parties. They have different policies. Labour is more pro-Remain and Tories are more pro-Leave. Now, it'd be nicer if the Tories were even more pro-Leave than they are, but we are, but that's, that's where we are. Whereas, as you say, you know, both parties want to spend more on the NHS. Both parties Mm. want to spend more on the police. And and I'd say, you know, about, Boris, if he wasn't, if it wasn't for Brexit, he'd be another Tony Blair figure. Mm. He's Blair plus Brexit, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and in terms of economic policies, uh, Phil Mullen highlighted this very well. I mean, both Labour and the Tories, uh, although there are obviously differences in the amount they're planning to spend, are just reflecting the new economic consensus that is shared by the IMF, that's shared by policymaking institutions all around the world, that actually, yes, the state does need to step in a bit more. Austerity has been discredited. I mean, the same thing is happening in America under under Trump. What is Trump's economic policy at its heart? It's tax cuts and increase in infrastructure spending. Hmm. You know, whether it's a right-wing government, left-wing government, Everywhere across the West, it doesn't seem to matter. It doesn't seem to make any fundamental difference to, um, you know, how people approach the economy. When this first came out and the headlines were splashed with the 1.2 trillion, I found myself almost being a Labour apologist because, <laughs> or I found myself wanting to defend the abstract notion that spending was good or yeah. that investment was good because there was such an outcry about the idea that you would do anything other than continue the balancing the books kind of process that we've had for the last 10, 15 years. But it's exactly right that you say that these parties are so much more similar than they are different mm. in terms of, you know, the Labour Party could have, sure, the manifesto aren't out yet and there's the whole issue of it being all a bit concocted by the Tory parties but wouldn't it be been better for the Labour Party to come out and say yes we are going to spend and own it and say yeah. yes we are actually we know that people are and not fond of austerity and we've got a really exciting plan moving forward but instead they say no we haven't no we're very sensible you know and there's this kind of tit for tat nonsense 
argument going on. The whole point of the radicalism that was inherent within the Brexit vote was not just about leaving the European Union, but it was about saying, actually, we are an electorate that's ready to make some, take some risks, make mm. some changes um, and do things differently. And that, you know, even the message within the Brexit vote that was, we're ready to take an economic hit, um, you know, in relation to all the scaremongering from the banks and big business about Brexit and still the electorate said, we want this, means that you've got a really productive field or a space from which you could make some really interesting kind of choices about the economy. You could do something very different. And Phil Mullen's book, Creative Destruction, outlines some of the things in which you could really shake up the way the economy is working, have huge amounts of investment, not just 1.2 trillion, which, as he says in his article, is the kind of sum that no one really understands. But, you know, times it by five, times that by 10. But the important thing is where you put this money. Yeah. I think the important thing you also have to consider is no matter how much scaremongering goes on about who's spending what, we've also got in the background the kind of climate alarmism, which means mm. that no one's really going to put money in anywhere where it will make any difference because there's a whole worry about um, spending or producing or developing because that's bad for the environment. And at the same time, you know, we are in the realm of this fear mongering around Brexit, essentially still beholden to big business, which says don't shake things up too much. Don't make any political changes or otherwise, otherwise we're going to pull our funding from this plant or that plant. So the extent to which any of these pronouncements are going to have any kind of real change is limited. But the interesting thing I think is that, and Phil makes this point, because you have parties moving away at least from the sort of the stagnant austerity argument, it shows that they might perhaps realise that the electorate is not going to swallow the same kind of politics as we did before. And it's incumbent on us in this election to show them that we won't and to make them pay if they try and do business as usual politics. You've been listening to The Spike Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, why not give us a rating, a review, or even a donation? We'll be back next week, but for more great Spiked content, just go to spiked-online.com. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.